0: Hello there. This is Jim, the Keys bartender, coming to you from a beautiful. I always pause because I look out the window and I have a beautiful, beautiful, sultry, warm. I want to say hot, but it's not really hot. Key Largo, and if you're not familiar with the Keys bartender podcast, a podcast is about Keys life and bartending in general, or back or vice versa, bartending and Keys, uh, Keys life, or life in general. So. At my place to work, I know I've been talking about it for years. They actually got the computers in for the POS system we've been waiting for. Yes, we have been doing hand tickets since I've been there. And it's so... For, for me, if you're in the restaurant bar business, uh, and if you're my age, yes, you m- probably have an experience doing hand tickets. And there's some younger people that may have an experience f- for that because there's some advantages to writing hand tickets depending on how busy you get right if you don't get too crazy busy hand tickets are awesome they're simple they're low upfront cost. when i say hand tickets i'm talking about writing your orders down old school way just writing them down doing the math doing everything you know with calculators it's it's different i imagine Years ago, without calculators, whoa. You know, you had to be pretty much a whiz at that. Now, a lot of different places, because municipalities, because of calculators and things like that, people have been uh, kind of playing fast and loose with percentages. In Florida, there's 7% sales tax. And in the Florida Keys, they add another half a percent for the locality. Right, so seven and a half percent. Now, for a lot of people, you could just figure out taxes and things like that. For uh, I mean, with cashiers, registers have been able to do that for years and years and years, right? And I don't know how they really. I guess in a uh, old analog register, I guess you could pretty much do that too. But pretty much you had to. I think you pretty much had the wing tax. You know, wing it, meaning do, do the math for it. So, but at busier places, that's that had to be a pain in the ass. And the same thing too, to do with writing tickets to people with horrible handwriting. If you're writing up a, a hand ticket and then you're handling, handing it to your, as a form of communication to tell someone what your order is, because you write the tickets, you take the order from uh, the customer, now, you have to keep a copy yourself, so you have you have to keep a running total, right? You don't want to have to write it down twice. So what they do, you, you know, they used to use carbon paper, and uh, the carbon paper, you'd make a duplicate copy. One copy would go into the kitchen, and hopefully they'll be able to read that. And then, in a bar-restaurant setting, you'd also have your drinks on the ticket, too. So sometimes... They would just call their drinks to the people behind the bar, and so you don't have to duplicate it. You you have that carbon paper, and you write all the drinks on it. And if you don't have to write it down twice, the better, because you talk about streamlining. But with the we are now introduced, getting into the 21st century, I'm done talking about handwritten tickets. Because there's other things that aren't so hot with handwritten written tickets. Once you lose that ticket, if you lose both tickets, there is no record. That's it, other than your memory. And if there's a misinterpretation on the ticket, that's you know, it's handwriting and handwriting could be. How many times have you read, um, you know, a doctor's note, a prescription, and try to try you know it's 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 a comedy bit but it's true people's handwritings and their signature are notoriously they go from good to bad and we always say good is where it adheres mostly to the classical print or cursive and then you have people that are more nuanced about their signatures and their writing and it's just it's difficult to decipher. And the longer you have to decipher, there's interpretation. You say, well, that doesn't say that. That looks like this. But when you use a uniform system, like a POS system, there's only one abbreviation. And there's one way to print it. And the only thing is, if it uses ink, most of it's heat-treated paper now. So it should all come out the same way and print out. And you'd have agreement. That's... Egg Bene- Eggs Benedict, that's a fried fish, that's this, that's that. And it comes out and tells you the time and the place it goes and the person that orders it. And it's stored in the POS system. And also has amount of uh, what the cost is, the per unit pr- uh, price for it. And then you also have the uh Keeping them, you can with this obviously any POS system worth the salt. If you have ordered, let's say you have 20 pounds of hamburger and your hamburgers are eight ounces, you know you have 40 hamburgers. Now, if you're, you know, one day you do 25 cheeseburgers and hamburgers sales. You know you have 15 hamburgers left over. You know you have to order that much more meat. Same thing goes with mahi filets, grouper filets, and things like that. So you can keep track of that. Keep track of your drinks. When you're ordering from the kitchen, they get their own ticket that has the food. Because you don't have to send the drinks there. The drinks can split off when you put drinks in. They go to a bar. And you don't send all the drinks to the bar. Because you only send the drinks that the bartender has to make. You don't have to send the tea, the soda, the coffee, the espresso. That's things the server will make. So maybe all the mixed drinks, all the beer and wine goes there. And you also have an inventory being kept to that. You know if you have, uh, when it breaks down to uh, 12 bottles of vodka, and you went through, supposedly... Let's say twelve bottles is 23 and a half ounces each. Um, works out to be two hundred about three hundred ounces. If you make a hundred drinks, which is close, you know, let's say an ounce and a half, one hundred and fifty, and you know you're gonna you can order start thinking about ordering another case of vodka because you'll know you have around give or take one bottle five five bottles left of vodka and you say oh it's time to get another case of uh, vodka and that's that's nice now that's if people aren't overpouring but this standardized system seems to streamline the whole process right there when you're doing it and but the weird thing about it if you're doing hand tickets for such a long time people say they're afraid of the change And they get nervous about having to change the way they do things. That instead of just writing a ticket, taking the two-part ticket, giving it to the kitchen, ordering your drinks for a person, you have to go up to a terminal and put your order in. But the way it's freeing in there, because when you have to total the bill, you just hit a button and you say, total and i will print it out, and you have it. You don't have to print it out twice. What we do is we have to add it twice sometimes. We have to add the ticket together, check our math, make sure we had everything in there. If it's everything's on the ticket in the POS system, everything will be priced out, and the total will be there with the tax added. Now, on a hand ticket, you may have 13 people at a table. Originally, they wanted to have one uh, check, and you go to them finally and say, no, you know, listen, we're going to do about seven checks. So then you have to split it all together and retabulate it. On a POS system, you just take it, you create seven bills, move the items by tapping and clicking, which is the most the way people do it nowadays, unless you have an old system where you have to route it to a check. But you just tap it, tap it there, it goes on that check tap it again, tap it on this check, blah, 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 and you split all your checks. So much easier. It is so much easier. People are very nervous about new things when they're coming in. And people say, well, I'd rather just move it there myself and do the additions. So anytime I explain to people, anytime you spend five to ten minutes figuring out a big check, think about cutting that down to two minutes, three minutes. That's where you can do more. You can serve more people. The more people you serve, the more time you're in front of the customer, more time you're serving, the more money you make. So when you don't do that, you have tables waiting, you have orders waiting, you don't have an order of operation. The kitchen doesn't have an order of operation because when the tickets come in when you have a POS system and say this one came in at 130, this one came in at 132, and this one came in at 135. And also, you're able to send your appetizers in when you want your appetizers. Meaning, people sit down, they order appetizers, you want to send that in right away. And, but they also gave you their entree food that they want for their meal. But they don't want it at the same time as their appetizers. What you do, you order the appetizers. The appetizers are almost ready. So you decide to send your food into the kitchen so they can start working on that as you're bringing out the appetizers. It's so much easier. And in some cases, people will look at that order, new system, and they'll say, oh, it's going to be so, I don't know if it's going to help us. I don't know if it's going to help. I'm going to tell you now, if you use it properly and there's no glitch in the system, you don't lose power, that system is going to work great. The bad thing about POS system, and I've worked in places, when they go down, when you lose power. People that were raised or trained doing handwritten tickets, they have no problem. But if you're just used to using a POS system, you say, well, listen, you have to write down the proper abbreviation. You have to write it down. Well, everything slows down. The kitchen reads the tickets differently. Your bartender gets hit by, they're not used to remembering all these drinks. I know me. They can, you can give me a five or six random order of drinks. If no one's talking to me, I can remember those items. But give me those six order, those six items and in a randomized order, and then have someone tell, oh, we want to order our food. Can you make me another captain and coke? And another person give you another order of four drinks. The first order of six drinks. Or five drinks. Now, I don't even remember what I said. It's completely gone. So, that's the that's the dilemma with that. When you do... When you're used to a system and you switch to another and you go back and forth to those items. I know there's people. I know people that work with POS systems and people that work with uh, uh, ticket systems. People that are more comfortable with the POS system or people that work with POS systems. People... Uh, that are more comfortable writing hand tickets or the people that almost exclusively write hand tickets. And there's another thing with hand tickets. Hand tickets are are written tickets are the most that are are maybe the most apparently the ones where you can make a mistake or you can hide or you can hide malfeasance. Meaning you say, "Oh, I made a mistake. I didn't put those drinks on." I mean, now it's if you had to track to see if someone's not putting drinks on a ticket, you'd have to pull all their tickets and figure out which tickets are theirs and which tickets were what days were in. You have to pull their tickets, and then you'd have to look and say, "Well, how come your average drink orders for tables is is twenty five to thirty percent of everyone else's?" And you'd have to figure that out by pulling all the tickets and figuring which one on a POS system, you just use their server code. Let's say it's 723. And the server code comes in and say, listen, this is the average uh, amount of their drinks. They get like $12 per drink per table over the course of six months. And everyone else has 35 of their drink. And then you can say, well, this is unusual. And you, it might be unusual. You can also look at it and say, well, they mainly work lunches. This person works dinners. And dinners is when people more order the alcoholic cocktails. In lunchtime, they have more soft drinks and there's no repeat. So there's maybe three or four or five soft drinks there. So that's why they have the average of twelve, you know, uh, 10 to $12 on their tickets. Because very rarely people are drinking at lunchtime nowadays. So there's all these things you could do. There's all these things you could spot and you know, all these things like keeping track of inventory, see how much, exactly how much money you made, how much in order to find out how much of it, the biggest appetizer that was sold that month or how quickly you go through Mahi. You could just pull a report. All the items that use Mahi, all the hamburger, all the, all the chicken, all that. And you say, wow, we, chicken makes up 30% of our menu item and we were getting close to it, or we sit on we sit on this certain amount of food a little too long, maybe we should slow down in this traditional slow month. There's so many things you could do. I just want to say, if you're not used to using a POS system, fear not. Because in the end, you'll just have more tools to be able to do the things to make your business more profitable and more efficient. And isn't that what really everyone wants to have? It's more efficient, more po- uh you know, profitable. And you can do much more. You can do much more with your company that way. I'm going to leave it at that. I was having a discussion with uh, a family member today. And while I'm talking to him, I'm thinking about how, I'm thinking personally and through my life experience that a lot of times when you're, the way I look back on life is when I do the right thing in a row, when I'm ever when I'm doing the right things like eating right, following the right habits, not wasting time, being uh, reasonable with my money, I things seem to fall into place easier. And anytime things haven't gone well is when I started going off that path. When I started making the wrong decision. It's so much easier to get into A bad decision-making mode depending on the decision you made prior to it you think about it Uh, I I can only apply the skills from what I know happened to me and what apparently happens to other people because a lot of times when I run into people that have kind of questionable lifestyles you know, they could be, you know, heavily involved in alcohol, drugs, criminal activity. And I do get a certain exposure to people of that uh, background. We have a tendency to think they're always that way. That's just who they are. And that's kind of like the behavioralist kind of mentality. And we're saying a criminal is a criminal. A drug addict is a drug addict. You know? a cad is a cad well i i would come and i would counter with someone who says something like that was they probably didn't intend to be that way there was a commercial uh by the drug council in the united states and it was uh, some kid running and you you hear a background and over uh you know narrator saying no one says when they're a, ch- a kid or when they're young, they want to grow up to be uh, a drug dealer, and then you see the cop filing behind. The picture opens up, and you see a cop chasing the guy, or a police officer chasing the guy. So, uh, no, that you know, in a way, if you're one of those people that believe people aren't born criminals, which I have a tendency to believe, most people aren't. Most people aren't. I'm saying it's possible for you to be psychotic when you're born. It is, is it possible to be prone to psychosis and things like that? But what I think is that people start leaving, leaving the path, and it could be small things, small, small things are really easy. I believe that if you're uh, someone that's a thief, may have started out as a shoplifter, as a, as a child, when small shoplifting, candies, things like that, taking things around the house. And that becomes the normative behavior for them. And they, it is so much easier for someone to take something when they have a history of done it because they dealt with the repercussions of it, how they psychologically handled it and say, well, obviously the person has, said, has done that. Most people, when they do something against their upbringing, have a tendency to think uh, things like, uh, they're racked with guilt. They realize and say, well, this, I wasn't supposed to be this way. I wasn't raised. I was told that was stealing. I'm going to pause for a moment. I got to open the door for the wife. I'll be right back. So I'm back. So all those little things take you off the beaten path. It's like creating a new uh, trail to follow. And it's hard to get back on that uh, other path. I mean, that's what... A lot of times these rehabilitation facilities are about. They take you off out of the environment that you are become accustomed to and put them into, let's say it's a drug-free environment. You're, you're, you're a drug addict and you're going to say, listen, you're not going to be hanging out. You're, you know, it's funny in, in these rehab facilities, you're taking people that do hang out in drug dens, drug cultures, and do the things that people do that are addicted to drugs, and you put them all together, which is counterintuitive, right? Because you really want to put them in with a place where people are unlike that. They don't have those behaviors. But in a lot of senses, people that are unlike that, they see that they may think that they're uh, uh, square, boring, they're uninspired. And they don't see a commonality. So when you put in a rehab facility, you have people of different levels of advancement, of rehabilitation. Sometimes your counselor could be someone who was in the same exact spot as you are. That's kind of like the 12-step model that we use in, in, the, in the group I belong to. We have former people with chemical dependency, helping newer people recover. And they say, well, listen, I can identify with you or you can identify with me because we were doing similar things or the same thing before. And then you help guide them back to the path that they were originally on, whatever path they want to be on, really. If your path is, obviously, for certain people, your path is to steal, cheat, and hurt people, and you think that's per- perfectly fine. Most people, if you tell them that, if you say, "Listen, you know, you this is the way you lead your life," if you give them an opportunity to think about it, they'll realize that they that is not the best path for them. But they don't see another path forward for themselves. They don't see a way. There's no way else that I can learn a living, or I can satisfy. My obligations, my financial obligations. If you have uh, a gambling addiction, you think there's no way I have to. If I have a gambling addiction, I have to be able to do this, I have to be able to do that. You change your whole life around that. And that, that addiction, addiction is this peculiar set for that. But I'm talking about people that just set up their behaviors. You start hanging out with people that have different. Goals like, you know that it's it's Saturday night, and you say, "Well, uh, I have a drinking problem." You don't want to hang out with people that their goal is to get fucked up that night, right? What's what's the point? Other than getting fucked up, I hate to use that language, but that's that's it. And if you're trying not to, that's the wrong person. That's the wrong path. That's it. but you really can't go with the person. That isn't that goal, you know. If it's, if it's, you know, you think, well, that's just a church group, isn't it? There's just a lot of nuances defining your way back from the things, but being led off that path on how you favor. If you're a, um, let's say, you're married, and you start, you know. Doing these things that are not conducive with a healthy marriage, like hiding your finances from them, hiding, hiding, you know, some. Maybe you're doing something. You're maybe your accountant, and you could be, you could be working for someone, like say, hiding their cash, doing some laundering for them, and you hide that from your your spouse. They don't know. I mean, there's some famous, famous popular shows that, um, it was Ozarks, something like that, where the guy was, um, he, unbeknownst to him, his partner had taken a cartel member as a client, and it was laundering money for him, then he got involved with it, but when he got involved with it, he had to keep that from his family, and when there was a problem or whatever, I'm kind of bullet pointing the, uh, the show, but... Also, there was something the wife was doing that was also he kept, she kept from her husband. And they got, they grew apart. And that's the exact opposite of following the same path. I'm sorry, I got this squeaky chair. And he noticed that in the background. So I always thought that the intention of people, had, they never had the intention of going in certain directions. And they end up in places that they never expected to be. I once woke up in a hotel in downtown Philadelphia. It was in a questionable hotel. And I had my shoes, my wallet, and my watch taken from me. And I had a large man telling me I had to get out of the place. And I was a little groggy. And I was put out on the street with no shoes on. In downtown Philadelphia, I lived about uh, eight miles north. And I had to get, find my way home without any shoes, um, get on the subway, then on the uh, train in order to make my, you know, get my way back home. I hadn't intended to be there, but I had... Mm -hmm. chosen to do a bunch of things that I normally don't do. One of them was years before I started adopting a very serious drinking problem, which I kept up for years and years. And then while I was drinking, I would go places that normally, if I wasn't drinking, I wouldn't go to. And I would talk and associate with people I normally wouldn't associate with. And I got in the habit, and then I found myself walking home without any shoes, begging to get on the subway, and then a bus in order to make myself home, mortified. My neighbors are going to see me walking down the street of the street that I grew up on, barefoot, at... uh, it must have been like 8 in the morning. I really didn't see anybody. No one really approached me. But to see a guy walking down the street disheveled with, his, with no shoes on, they had to have their own narrative that they thought it was going on. They, said, they must have thought, wow, that doesn't seem like the kid that used to come home from high school and college 10 years earlier. And I didn't intend to do that. It's just the place I found myself. And I kept on doing that until I was in my mid to late 30s and I straightened up somewhat for a couple years and started going back down that road again after um, a ways until I decided to give up the thing that made me kind of meander from that path. And that for me, in particular, that was my uh, problem drinking. And my problem drinking wasn't that uh, handled by just drinking less, which I've tried numerous times. It was just totally abstaining from it. And even then, I ended up going back out again and started doing those things. But I do notice patterns that when I start doing things that aren't on in line with my values and my goals that I can end up in places that I didn't intend to be and all I have to do is kind of recommit to doing the right thing and I I kind of I, I kind of really need to be reminded of those things every so often because it's so easy it's so easy not. Um, no one's perfect. You should know that, because we are our own worst critics. We shouldn't let a a transgression by ourselves, or you know, personal transge- uh, transgression, derail the possibility of getting back to the place we want to be. So if we're out, then you know, we're out partying, not doing the right thing, hanging out with people we're not supposed to, uh, overdoing, overdoing it, overdoing everything. We can have a tendency the next day after doing things wrong to think, well, there's no way for me to get back. I might as well, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. I'm bad. You just think yourself good you to think yourself as good. As an imperfect person, and try your best again. And that's that's my intention. It's very hard to do that, and you can't beat yourself up too much because you know once racking yourself with guilt, will definitely will definitely uh, cause you more pain than improvement. So. I'd focus more on improvement instead of the guilt. If you start feeling guilty about something, it's because you you need to maybe do an adjustment. And that's what that guilt is. It's not there to torture you. It's to show you and say, oh, I better do something different. Well, that's all I have for today. I'd like to thank you for listening. I will get back to you again later this week. Take care and have a great day. Bye.